Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, as we continue our study. In fact, the text that we addressed last week, we'll finish working down through that text today, an important text that will highlight not only that Christ is our hope, but it'll also remind us that in this world, uh, there will be tribulation, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be challenges. And um, if you're paying attention, we live in that age and era, but there is always hope in life and death in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just to reiterate uh, the announcements for this morning, just a couple of them. Uh, Chuckster Family Fun Day is uh, for our families, particularly with kids and children and youth ministry, but it's for senior saints as well. We want to have an intergenerational kind of activity where we can all get together. There's going to be no sit-down Bible study or, or any kind of uh, old-fashioned camp meeting kind of stuff. Just come and enjoy each other. Maybe get to know someone that you don't know. And this is all going to be uh, taken care of through our budgeted uh, process. Uh, we'd encourage you uh, to take time to bring your family out to that. Also, uh, for those who uh, really enjoy the, the, uh, the King's Brass and Tim Zimmerman, uh, some of you are familiar with their ministry, Family Life Ministry, will be bringing them into the area this Friday, July 30th. It's going to be at Central Baptist, and uh, that's a 7 o'clock service or 7 o'clock concert. Uh, doors opening at 6 o'clock. It's a free will offering. You don't need tickets for that. The reason we're announcing it is some of our own are going to be playing with the King's Brass that night, and uh, we wanted to give uh, a particularly uh, note their involvement in that. John Sorber, the Horvaths, and uh, Greg Lewis will be playing with the King's Brass on Friday evening. If you'd like to be a part of that, again, that's 7 o'clock at Central Baptist Church in Johnson City. I want to encourage you as we continue to move forward and, and minister and the age in which we live and in the challenges of the age in which we live, we're going to face some things that uh, we have probably never faced before. We already have in some ways faced things that we've never faced before, and Peter addresses that more than anything in the area of persecution, and a particular type of persecution that uh, will be revealed as we move through the text. And I hope it brings some encouragement to you. So while you have your Bible's open to 1 Peter. I, I'm just going to read a passage of Scripture. It kind of sets the tone for the passage and what's taking place. It comes out of the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, as the church was growing and the responsibilities were increasing greater and greater, the disciples and the apostles decided that they would, they would call out others to, to assist them under their authority, to assist them with the work of the ministry. They were to pick seven men of of good repute or reputation who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. One of the individuals that they chose to assist them in ministry was a man by the name of Stephen. The text says of Stephen that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. As we continue to follow in the text in the book of Acts, it tells us that uh, whenever he was challenged by the religious leaders, whenever he was challenged in the faith, his wisdom was greater than those who would challenge them. The Bible tells us that, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit from which Stephen was speaking. The hand of God was upon him. And as they saw him and as they beheld him, they, they saw very little room to, to challenge his faith and, and challenge his beliefs. 
Nonetheless, they brought him before the council and the high priests because they weren't happy about him preaching Christ and Christ crucified. In fact, as they bring him before the council, there is this drawn-out process, and he gives testimony before that council. The very people who could do him harm, who didn't like the message that he was bringing, Stephen says to him, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, this Christ that he preached, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, you can see that Stephen, if he was trying to endure, endear himself to the chief priests and the council, didn't do a very good job. You could probably say he ticked them off a little bit more. That's exactly what happens when you speak the truth to a culture of deceit. When you speak Christ into a Christless world, you do the right thing in wisdom and in the Spirit. It reminds me even of James saying, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That was Stephen. The passage doesn't doesn't end there. As he gives these faithful and convicting words to the chief priests and the council, the Bible records that when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at them, a visceral reaction. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees... He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We look at that text and that historic reality for a man full of the Spirit and fight, who was willing to tell the truth to people who didn't want to hear the truth, who was willing to stand for that truth in a culture that wanted nothing to do with that truth in which he stood, uh, particularly the righteous one, Jesus, whom he preached. Stephen went through this suffering of persecution that we spoke of last week, even to the point of death. But even as we sang this morning, he found his hope in Christ, even in life, yet even in death. It played out in reality, the very things that that Peter is trying to convey to this audience who he's writing to, they're beginning to experience greater and greater persecution for their faith in Christ. They're beginning to stand out among the people. Uh, They could be identified and recognized. They they were the weirdos of the culture. They, They were the different ones when, in fact, they were the ones who had the truth and the truth that would set men free if they might listen to that truth. As Peter warns those in his audience, 
Persecution is going to continue. It's going to get worse. You're going to suffer for the name of Christ. It's what's ordained. It's within the will of God. We see Stephen negotiating those things in real life and according to the will of God, crying out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew a better day was coming. He knew the outcome of all of this. You know, it's one thing to talk about the suffering of persecution. It's a totally different matter to endure the suffering of persecution. That's why I want to start with Stephen this morning. The suffering of his persecution and yet the maintenance of his faith and his hope and the absolute no compromise of his gospel that ultimately caused him to lose his life. But according to the Scripture, to gain it, and gain direct entrance to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. Reminded you last week from Michael Kruger's book, Surviving Religion, as strange as it sounds, there's a certain spiritual depth and a certain spiritual strength that we will never reach without going through an intense season of doubting and struggling. And as he struggled with the chief priests in the Sanhedrin, and, 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 and as he struggled to maintain the integrity of his message in, in light of continued and increasing pressure, it was a season that got him to the place where he could simply say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I know how this ends. A better day is coming. And as that's lived out in front of us, We must challenge this notion in modern evangelicalism that somehow when God brings you to salvation in Jesus Christ, His his purpose for your life is to simply make you happy. How far from the truth is that? God doesn't exist for your happiness. He doesn't exist for your every whim. He doesn't exist to, to, to be at our beck and call. But He always exists to be glorified, and He always exists as a faithful God. And and we must rest in that faithfulness even in the most difficult and challenging of persecutions. What we are here on earth for after we are rescued through the blood of Jesus Christ is to be conformed to the image of Christ and live our lives as testimony to truth. And if we live our lives as testimony to truth… Don't you suppose a similar fate is in store for us? That's exactly what Peter says. Why are you surprised? As if something strange happened to you. Part of the problem is we have a very poor theology of suffering. And that poor theology of suffering has caused us to fall on one side or the other. We'll address it briefly this morning. But the truth of the matter is, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There will be a consequence for your faith. There will be a consequence for your voice. There will be a consequence for standing for truth. There will be a consequence for standing against error. Let me clear this up. There's this notion that we can stand for truth but be careful and winsome about standing against error. There is no such dichotomy. If you stand for truth, the people that you speak to will clearly hear that you are standing against their evil. We think that we can soften that somehow. That's not what Stephen did. You stiff-necked, disobedient people who had the voice of the prophets. In this challenge of culture as we build this theology of suffering, 
We turn our attention again to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also receive and be glad when His glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing so. The concluding statement says that suffering persecution is indeed a reality, but you must suffer according to God's will and entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. Even in the difficulty of this text, Peter is reminding them that a better day is coming. So as we continue through the text, I pray that you'd remind yourselves today that indeed a better day is coming. But don't be surprised if it gets harder before it gets easier. But a better day is coming. Father, I pray that you bless us as we delve into the text and again hear the voice, your Spirit speaking through that text, reminding us that a godly life and godly truth, difficult and hard truth, is necessary for salvation to consequential, harmful for persecution. Many of us will find ourselves in the trap between those two things, and we will be silenced or emboldened. Just sort it all out. Remind us the sufferings of persecution. Reveal the genuineness of our faith. It doesn't maintain our faith. It doesn't keep our faith. It doesn't assure us that we're okay. It just reminds us that the genuineness of our faith shining through in the midst of the weight of persecution and consequence in many ways purges the body, sorts it out, separates those of belief and those of little belief. Encourage us in the text and challenge us through its word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began in verse 12, beloved. This isn't the first time that Peter has spoken of persecution in 1 Peter. But as he speaks at this time, he's going to speak in very clear and difficult tones. So he begins this treatise by saying, beloved. He's doing it in tenderness and compassion, affection and care. He's recognizing that what some of these people will have to go through and face is, is something that no one would want to go through and face. And he's tender to that. He's 
He's compassionate towards their needs. He's trying to be careful in telling them the truth and, 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 and telling them the hard things that will become a reality, and yet telling them the truth of, of a theology of suffering that reminds us that everything's going to be okay. Do not be surprised at the fiery, the refining trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Some of you perhaps remember the first time in your life where you took a stand that you thought was innocent at best, and, and you, you got pushed back against a little bit, and you're like, whoa, where, where, did, where did that come from? Don't be surprised. As the world continues to spiral in unholiness and unrighteousness, the voice of truth will be this, this blast of a trumpet, and everyone will notice what's being said and will feel the weight of conviction of the Spirit of God, and sometimes their reactions will be so contrary and negative that persecution results. Don't be surprised when they hate you. Don't be confused and troubled when they don't say, oh, that sounds great to me. There's a reason for that, and Peter will get to that in a minute, little bit. Please remember that the testing of your faith is not a test that you pass or fail. It is a test that God allows to happen in your life for the depth of your faith, and He keeps you through it. If it was up to you and me to pass the test, most of us wouldn't do that. But God gives us what we need in the midst of the persecution to stand against that weight and trouble. It doesn't mean we don't doubt. It doesn't mean that we don't have questions. It doesn't mean that we don't cry out to God and say, why? It simply means that's reality, and God always provides for His people and sustains them through that time. Remember, doubt is not the same as unbelief. We make this Christian thing way too complicated sometimes, and, and, and unless you're perfectly holy, you can't be a Christian. Well, nobody here is at least under those circumstances. Our soul, the fate of our soul is sealed not by our holiness, but by the righteousness of Christ. Alone. Alone. It doesn't mean we're not to be holy. We're not trying to earn or keep our salvation by enduring persecution. We're acknowledging that our faith is real, and God gives us what we need to endure persecution. But doubt and unbelief are not the same thing, and be very careful not to connect those together. We will doubt, and we will wonder, and there will be times. And if you failed to do it last week and still have questions, do it this week, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Job and read through that a little bit. Doubts concern, overwhelming sense of helplessness. That happens sometimes, but don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. These sufferings are unjust. They're wrong. Just as Christ suffered the injustice in this world, you are to rejoice in Christ. You are to rejoice that you can share in His sufferings, and you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In the midst of your suffering, it doesn't mean it's easy, it doesn't mean it's pleasant, but in the midst of this, you are waiting in gladness. You are living, as we sang this morning, in hope of Christ, both in life and death, that a better day is coming and His glory will be revealed. The end of that suffering, perhaps the end of our lives, but in the end of the day, Paul says this in Philippians 1, 
the completion of our salvation. We see him, we become like him, for we see him as he is. The troubles and the struggles and the persecutions and the heartaches of life finally over. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a phrase that is debated a lot by commentators. But indeed, if indeed you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's not just using His name, that's standing in His stead as a representative, a mouthpiece to preach the gospel to every creature, to herald and to proclaim life by your behavior and by your actions and through your words. If you are insulted because you're standing for Christ, you are indeed blessed, and the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. No matter how you might interpret that text, we are simply reminded of the indwelling presence of the grace of God that rests upon us in the present tense and gives us the stamina and the ultimate victory in the midst of persecution, even to the point of death. Again, exhibited by Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Verse 15 kind of turns a corner and puts an opposition to the genuine believer sustained in their faith in the midst of weighty persecution. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. The truth is, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will experience and suffer persecution. There's a consequence in the text as well. The persecution must be connected with the name of Christ and the cause of Christ, not because of your failure, not because of your bad decisions, not because of your choices. There are consequences to life. So he says, listen, if you're suffering because you're a thief, if you're suffering because you're a a meddler, if you're suffering because you're an evildoer, a a lawbreaker… Well, that's on you. Don't say, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, that's on you. Don't, don't. If that's why you're suffering, you must bear the consequence for that suffering. But if you're suffering for the cause of Christ, if you're suffering for the name of Christ, there's hope and promise in this spirit of glory. Now, here's the trap that we fall into. Most of us are on one side of this trap or another, even in this room today. We come to the conclusion that whenever anyone goes through a difficult time here on earth, it must be God judging them. Well, my text says it's not God judging them, it's the world rejecting them. It's not God judging them, it is God coming to them in the midst of that rejection. Be quick to hold your tongue. When someone is going through trial, and so many of us, we have the wisdom of the Spirit and say, it must be God's teaching them a lesson. He might be, but what business is that of yours? I suspect you have other things to attend to in your life. The opposite, when we say or do something, the cross is a line, brings offense to the gospel and we get tapped for it. We say, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're a jerk. Stop it. 
There are consequences sometimes. Where's the balance there? Why are we doing this? And whose strength are we doing this? What is my motive for doing this? All of that matters in the midst of this persecution. Will persecution come when your intent is to glorify Christ, when you speak the truth into a truthless age? Will, will consequence come when you stand apart and say no to whatever it might be, government mandates or sweeping changes in the culture, when you say, no, that's not according to the will of God, will there be consequences? Absolutely, but the Spirit of glory will sustain you through that. Do the right thing. There's the right thing to be done, too, when you're suffering the consequences of your behavior. It's pretty simple. Repent. What does that mean? Don't blame God for your suffering. Own it yourself. You made a bad choice. Make a better choice next time and repent. I blew it. I blew it. We find ourselves in both sides of that equation. We're quick to rush to Oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. No, you're not. Oh, God must be trying to teach them a lesson. No. No, He's not. If you suffer for the name of Christ, He will sustain you. If you suffer for your actions, you will bear the consequence to those actions. It's a pretty simple principle. So when we suffer, and we will suffer, we must make sure we're suffering for a righteous cause, for Christ and His name and His gospel, not for these petty things that so often get us in trouble. None of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer. Then he says, as a meddler, an agitator, a troublemaker, perhaps, perhaps. This goes back to chapter 2, when he talks about obeying those that have the rule over you and these government authorities. And because they have the rule over you, you're to submit to them, even if there are consequences for you taking a stand for the name of Christ. We, 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 can't, we can't turn culture into this a lawless kind of culture, we're still accountable. There, there, there's still an accountability built in to the structures of the things under the heaven. Some commentators believe that he's saying, hey, listen, if you're suffering because you're a political agitator and you're poking the government and, and, and you're picking all these kinds of fights, boy, are we good at that sometimes. Well, that's on you. There's consequences to that. What does that have to do with the name of Christ? And that's what trips you up sometimes. Well, it has everything to do with the name of Christ, does it? I read this past week another book, and so I was reading through that book, something that stood out to me, and it was going back to the ages of the fighting fundamentalists. You've heard about them, right? They've become characterized over the last probably 30 or 40, even 50 years. And the text has said what I've always believed to be right. The fighting fundamentalists didn't fight long enough or hard enough for the right things. They spent all their time fighting about the trivial things. And you need to know the difference when you're fighting and meddling. Our job is not to change the world by fighting everything that happens. Our job is to preach the gospel and to fight for Christ because he's the only answer to everything that happens. And there's a fine line there sometimes. The political activism that is a part of the church today, 
that is extra biblical. It's, it's not based on defending core doctrines of Scripture. It's always going to get you in trouble, even more so today, even on Facebook. But if we're going to suffer, let's do it for something meaningful. Let's do it for the gospel. Do we believe the gospel is the only hope? Or do we believe that if we can somehow change this issue, and 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 this issue, the world will love us? Stop it. We must fight for the gospel and the name of Christ. Now, as an individual, you have every right to speak to these issues. But he's saying, listen, if you're, you're a meddler, if you're poking the bear, and there's consequence, that, that's on you. If you're preaching the gospel and telling the truth unapologetically, if you're holding firm to the faith, what is that faith? It's Christ and Christ crucified. That's what we saw in Stephen. That's what we see in the text here. There will be consequences. Some believe he's speaking of the meddling that even takes place in the church where there are busybodies who disrupt the peace and unity of local church ministry. It's painful a reality that is. It happens too often. Over trivial matters. And if you suffer for that, you suffer the consequences. He, in essence, is bearing out what perhaps Paul is driving at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. In other words, you're not really doing a whole lot, but being a busybody. You're not busy at work, something productive, but you're a busybody. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Take care of your own stuff. Take care of your own stuff. Is that hard to do in the culture today? It's especially hard to do in a culture that rejects any kind of sanctity of personal responsibility. Have you noticed that it's always somebody else's fault? So if you're to confront someone in the name of Christ based on absolute and clear, uncompromising doctrine, more often than not in today's culture is going to be turned around and you're being a fundamentalist and you're being judgmental and you're being this and you're being that and that those are the busybodies he's talking about. This is a passage of Scripture that points out that sometimes we suffer for Christ, and sometimes, and maybe oft times, we suffer just because of us. And it's little to do with Christ. We like to disguise it. We like to excuse it. We like to explain it as Christ. Where's the line? Boy, I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. I do know the line is biblical. I, I, I do know that. I believe when the Bible speaks of the sanctity of life, we must be champions of life. Every human being has intrinsic worth, value, and dignity. That's a non-negotiable. We must fight for life. That's different than fighting for the equality of life, for the equity that's being talked about today, right? You have, you have to know the differences. So he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, uh, as anyone suffers because of Christ, on behalf of Christ, for upholding Christ, for preaching Christ, for proclaiming Christ, if anyone suffers 
as a Christian a term of derision early on in the church. The first time that term is used is in the middle of the book of Acts. And the term Christian is only used three times in all of the New Testament. Because it started as a term of derision, those Christ ones, the people of the way, those people. If anyone struggles suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Perhaps that is, just perhaps, the important point in knowing whether or not I'm suffering the consequences of my behavior, or I'm suffering because I'm holding up Christ. Did you hear what Peter wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Well, let him glorify God in that name. If my action is my behavior or my words, and what I'm fighting for, is it glorifying to God? Maybe that doesn't help you. Maybe you're still wondering, so, so what is it then? How do I know the difference? Don't you suppose within the text you'll know the difference because of the Spirit of glory that is in you? Don't you suppose you'll know the difference because of that Spirit who brings conviction and promise and hope and direction in life? Don't you suppose that it would be revealed that it's more glorifying to you than to God if you're suffering? Then he says in verse 17, for there's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. In the text, when he speaks to this, he's talking about a crucial and decisive moment when persecution becomes ramped up in the culture, and we're beginning to, to bear the pain and the consequence of such persecution. God will render a divine decision as to whether or not your persecution is indeed for the cause of Christ or your persecution or, or what you're feeling is simply consequence of your behavior. As you look at this text and understand what he's speaking of, he's speaking of the household of God. I believe it's that universal church and, and even particularly the local church that the suffering that has begun in the church sometimes is directly related to faith, it is directly related to an evil world, it is directly related to, to a, a spiraling world given over to their sinfulness. If God would hold the household of God accountable, and if this judgment begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know what? You and I purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, secured through the ministry of His Holy Spirit, held in the palm of the Father's hand, clasped by our Savior's hand, and nothing can pluck us from our Father's hands. Nothing. Even death in persecution. It doesn't mean you won't experience persecution. It doesn't mean that there's not consequences for your behavior. It doesn't mean that this world is at war. It's principles and principalities and powers and, and, and demonic forces against the truth. Perhaps on the heels of 
his reference to meddling, <laughs> he's reminding the church, don't get caught up on all of that stuff. Stand in your testimony for Christ. And when you stand it as a proof, a, a reflection of your genuine faith. And if God is doing that in the church, what is going to happen? What's the outcome for those outside of His church, those in disobedience, those who will fall under divine judgment because they rejected the person and work of Jesus Christ? What's going to happen to them? One commentator said, it is the time of judgment has come for those who suffer for the name of Christ. What is the lot of unbelievers who will eventually suffer as a result of their disobedience? commentators connect this to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. If the righteous is repaid on earth, there are consequences for righteousness on earth. How much more consequence for wickedness and the sinner? Sobering indeed. So, in verse 18, again, reflecting on a passage of Scripture, the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What it means, scarcely saved? We sang about it this morning. You're not saved by what you do, even if you proclaim and lift up the name of Christ. You're not saved by how you respond to persecution. You're not saved by being sustained through persecution. It is a reflection of your faith. You are saved solely by the love of God in Christ Jesus and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. For scarcely will a righteous man die for the ungodly. Yet perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die, but God commended His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely saved. Listen, you didn't do this. You can't do this. Only Christ can do this. Therefore, Christ is my hope in life, and Christ is my hope in death. And if we are rescued by God through the blood of Jesus Christ and His divine wisdom in eternity past, yet we still experience persecution and consequence to the way we live or upholding the faith, if that happens to, to the people who are righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ, what is going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? I don't think we like to think about that very much. And in my opinion, it demeans the gospel. Until I recognize what a wretched man that I was without the grace of God through Jesus Christ that rescued my soul. I will never see the world in the black and white tones painted in the picture. I will minimize the people who are outside of that grace saying, well, they're good people. They're dead and they're trespasses and sin. You understand that? They're, they're not us. They're dip. That's why we must, in spite of all of its persecution, lift up Christ and proclaim the name and unashamedly speak the truth, even if it's direct and harsh. We must tell the truth. Why? Because eternal souls are at stake. 
C.S. Lewis, you've never met a mere mortal. Every human being you have any encounter with is a living soul for the rest of eternity. And if they're outside of Christ, and those inside of Christ experience consequence, can you imagine the weight of consequence for those disobedient for the gospel? The Bible says they will be cast into utter darkness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the answer? The answer is the gospel, and that's what we have to fight for. But the gospel is the very thing that will bring persecution down upon the church of Jesus Christ today. Are you ready? Buckle up. Take hope. It's the Spirit of God who fights this battle with you and enables you to endure through it for His glory. The fate of the unbeliever, the fate of the ungodly who transgressed God's command, therefore God gave them up. God gave them up. We could just stop there. God said, okay, go on. Go on and play this out. Go off in your sin. Go. God Get them up. Aren't you thankful that even in the midst of persecution, God never gives you up? (laughs) Never, 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 never. There is something worse than death, and that's eternal judgment. Therefore, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, even in the midst of persecution. Go out and live the life with fear and trembling, and in the will of God, if He's deemed it to be so, suffer persecution, and don't be surprised. This isn't the first time that Peter has talked about persecution in the text. He talks about it over and over and over and over within his context. He brings it somewhat to a conclusion, although he has kind of a benediction in chapter 5. In verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will, only those who are being persecuted for upholding the name of Christ, for standing in defiance of this world, only those suffering according to the will of God, something ordained or allowed to happen. God is not doing this persecution to punish you. God is allowing this persecution for His glory and your good so that you might proclaim the name of Jesus in a bold and passionate kind of way. <coughs> Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while continuing to do good, to entrust your souls, to commit it for safekeeping, to believe in the midst of the worst of persecution, that there is a God and He is faithful. He has made you for a purpose, and He has called you through His Son, and He has you in this world to speak this truth to a pagan culture. And in spite of that persecution, He will keep you, He will keep you, He will keep you. So, 
keep your eyes fixed on that faithful creator. But I sense that perhaps in the context, it's also reminding us of doubt. Where are you, God? Do you know what's happening? Do you know what they're doing to me? How long, O Lord? Remember last week? How how long, O Lord? It takes me immediately back to the Gospels. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on it. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? This Creator God superintends His creation and provides. He's calling the believer in the hour of persecution to trust and that Creator who has rescued their souls, and to stand firm. Again, I told you it's really not the first time this has happened. Chapter 2, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish persons. 2.20, for what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it and you endure? When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Chapter 3, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Chapter 3, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Look at what he says as he brings things to a close in this particular context. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, turning your attention to this Creator, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace was called you to His eternal glory and Christ will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and forever. And when it comes to suffering persecution for the cause of Christ, we see in the example of Stephen and we see in the teachings of Peter a theology of suffering that commends and commands us to believe that a better day is coming, to continue to do what was right, and to trust in the faithful Creator who saved us and who keeps us and will hold us even to the point of death. Coram Deo, as we close, R.C. Sproul says this phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. It involves recognizing that there is no higher goal than offering honor to God, even in the midst of the worst of persecution. Quorum Deo, may God find us faithful.
storm is here. And if we shall suffer for the cause of Christ, we should stay faithful to the truth of the gospel. If we're to choose our battles in this world, we will have persecution. But in the end, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Therefore, to him be the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Father, keep us, protect us, sustain us, remind us. We, we flitter back and forth quick to point out the failures of others, at the same time masking our own pain, somehow claiming that our suffering is righteous. Instead of trying to sort it all out, just remind us that you're good and that you're good all the time. And when, if you choose to bring this persecution, find us faithful to the grace of God, the sustenance of your Spirit, with words and clarity of truth to a world that does not want to hear, believing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when we cry out in doubt, remind us that there's coming a time when it's all over, when in fact it becomes brand new. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.